turn with me again to the book of Hebrews, and we are going to be looking at chapter 12 in just a moment. As you can tell, we're a little bit out of our normal uh, rhythm of things here. Uh, A lot's changed. We've got a different seating arrangement. We've got a different order of service. And so there's just lots of questions about why things uh, are so different. And one of the bigger things that will be different is this week and maybe even next week, depending on how long this takes today, (laughs) uh, we're going to actually be taking a break from our study in Genesis uh, to answer an extremely significant question in this time, and that is why we gather in the first place. What's the big deal about gathering as a church? I mean, if we can do so virtually, why not just keep it going? And I think that my sentiments on this are are personal and principle. I mean, personally, this whole experience like reminds me of my own reunion with my family a few years ago. It was literally one of the worst decisions I've ever made in my husbanding and parenting career. I was in seminary, and I was thinking that I could get through seminary faster and get us through a normal pace of life, back to like normal stuff, not full-time school, full-time work, if I would take this one class during the summer that would basically require me to not see my family for six weeks. I was thinking six weeks versus one year. If I can get this six-week class in, it will keep me from having to do other stuff longer. So, I signed up for the class entitled Gladiator Greek. The idea behind the Gladiator Greek class is that it starts at 6 o'clock in the morning, it ends at 11 o'clock in the morning, and then since I still had to work, I would then drive from there to Chick-fil-A, be there by 12 o'clock, work till 8 o'clock, and then do my homework till about midnight and start the whole process over again for six weeks. So uh, Tanya and I decided, and it's not her fault, it was mine, it was like, hey, you know what, since this is going to be so hard and I'm not going to be able to be that active of a dad, why don't you go back home to North Carolina? We haven't seen our family for a year. Go see your family in Florida. Y'all just have fun this summer and I'll kill myself here and we'll just divide and conquer. And so (laughs) uh, we divided, but we did not conquer. (laughs) Um, The the beautiful thing was, it's about 2010, 2011 at that time, all the technology that's available to us today was available then. We pacified this, um, this instinct, this concern, by saying, well, we still have a phone, we can still do text messaging, and we can still do video conferencing. At that time, people did Skype. And so we tried this thing. And as soon as the kids were literally out of the house, I dropped them off at the airport, and I get back to my apartment, and I see all their little toys in their room, and I just start bawling. I mean, I just realized, like, once they were gone, that first night, that things are not supposed to be this way. Just because something can be done doesn't mean that it should be done. And so, we muddled through the most horrific weeks of my life, and I realized that people do this for much longer stints because of the military and things. I get it. But the principle is still the same. Just because something could be done doesn't mean that it should be done. Now, if you try to apply that to our situation here, I, I want you to like, understand 
how I'm feeling just as a pastor stepping into today. I feel today somewhat like I did when I was finally reunited with my family after that six-week stint. There's a certain nervousness or anxiousness (laughs) that comes with it because it's been so long, you're out of the habit, if you will. There's a certain excitement. There's something that feels right about it. And then you also realize that there is a lot of makeup work to do. There was so much that I couldn't do virtually that I needed to make up for. And as a church, maybe we all feel that way right now, that, that we, we did it because we had to, we did it because it was actually what seemed to be best. I love the way that Mitch put it earlier. We were trying to respect the government. We were trying to love our neighbors in light of a time that was, you know, this disease was so unknown, and so much is still unknown. And yet we've decided to begin to reconvene. And I've noticed some interesting attitudes through this. I mean, extremely interesting attitudes, not necessarily toward the, the, the government, but there's this question on the back of some people's minds that is a physical gathering in time and space actually necessary? Like, do we really have to do this? I mean, as I listen to pundits and social media prophets, everyone around me is trying to predict what the new normal is going to be, or our best normal is going to be. And so people are asking things like, if we'll, are we ever going to do anything in person anymore? Some of the more radical proponents would say that, no, there's not going to be any more movie theaters, and there'll be no live sporting events, and there'll be no concerts, and who needs the school? You've got a computer, and well, what about jobs? We could all work remotely. And I think I could argue against every one of those things not happening. (laughs) But the one that bothers me is when people throw church into that category. Like as if what's happening right now is actually legitimately up for discussion. Like, well, why, why not just meet virtually? I mean, the, the way that I've seen some people phrase it is that, well, I mean, if it's, gonna, if it's always going to be a threat, and churches just can just, I mean, if they're just dispensaries of information, why not do it online? The attitude with which people have responded to this sentiment kind of falls into three categories. Many churches did indeed just. They went digital, ours included. They began gathering online. Again, ours included. But some of us did this reluctantly. Some of us did this reluctantly, feeling some kind of ministry to the flock and connectivity with one another uh, was uh, uh, still important. Uh, but we knew that you know, electronic communication was better than no communication at all. We knew that uh, a Zoom call was better than nothing. And so reluctantly, we said, all right, this is irregular. We know something's off here, but we're going to do this for the time being. But interestingly, others did this ambivalently. What I mean that is that they were like, well, this, really, this isn't really that bad a thing. I mean, sure, we can meet in person, but now we can, like, really get our name out there and we can really advance the name of Jesus by doing things online. And even to the degree that they were like, we're still a church as long as we have a shared vision, a shared leadership, and a shared budget. So who cares if we're in person or not? In fact, I came across uh, one person 
who actually celebrated this, which brings me to my third category. Some of us did it reluctantly, some of us did it ambivalently, and some of us did it excitedly. Some people love it. I mean, they're sensing that, all right, now we really advance the message. We can really get it out there. People have maintained their normal church program and structure, and this is what they did. They just took their normal calendar and just put everything online. So if there was children's ministry going on, it just went online. If there was youth group, it went online. And and they're like, oh, this is awesome. Leading one church leader to actually say that churches before corona used to be physical entities with a digital presence. Now churches can be digital entities with a physical presence. Do you see the difference between the two? I mean, he's celebrating this. I mean, is such a sentiment though really something to celebrate? Is a physical gathering in a particular place really an option, or is it essential? Is church more aptly a digital entity or a physical entity? That is something that we as a church need to decide, because if things get worse again, or more to use the adjective that I've been introduced to in recent weeks, that I kind of like. If more draconian measures are once more introduced when this thing ramps up again in the fall, if indeed it does, I'm no doomsday prophet. And they say, you know what, churches, you just got to stop. In fact, our friends in the back here told me that in the state of Illinois, churches are forbidden for meeting for the next 18 months, at least a year. Or you think in California, just this weekend, The president announces on Friday that churches can meet across the United States. The Ninth Circuit Court of of Appeals in the state of California says, nope, can't do it, two to one. My former church, Grace Community, was planning on meeting this morning and doing communion, and they had to stop their service because of the Supreme Court decision. Why? This is where it gets down to something very important for us to be able to answer, friends. Why? Because it's not essential. It's not essential. The governor said, or excuse me, our governor has allowed this to be an essential activity. But the president of the United States will say, we need to view worship as an essential service. Religious gatherings are an essential service. And now there's the debate, no, this isn't essential. And you know what? There's a part of me that actually understands why liberal Supreme Court justices would say that it's not essential. Because the churches have been like, oh, this is cool. If all we've got to do is dispense information, well, well, let's just dispense information online. I mean, I think some guys actually like the fact that they have to talk to a camera now. (laughs) The message is getting out there. So the question for us, is this essential? Is this important, optional, or essential? Is this something that we're supposed to be doing? And now in answering that question over this week and next week, because I want to honor the fact that there are children in the service, and I told the elders I would keep this short. (laughs) In answering this, I want you to know what I'm not answering. I need to be really clear about this. I am not answering this morning why we gather now. The question before us is why do we gather, not why do we gather now. I am super aware of the fact that there is over half of our church family that is not with us this morning. This isn't some implicit critique of their decision to stay home. 
In fact, I'm glad some of you are staying home because it would put you at risk. But the truth of the matter is, at some point, even those who are at home would want to say, we want to regather. Why would a church ever want to gather in the first place? So not, why do we gather this Sunday? Not, Faith Bible Church has got it right because they opened this week, and the other churches down the street that didn't open this week got it wrong. That's not what we're answering here. We're only answering the essential question, why would churches ever gather in the first place? That's what we want to know. And I'll give you three reasons, and we'll unpack these over the next few weeks. And you'll see these from Scripture, but they're very simple, and you can write them down. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's how we work. Why do we gather as a church? It's who we are. It's what we do. It's how we work. When you read what the Bible says about the, like, the, the gathered people of God, you will see it's who they are, it's how they work, and it's what they do. So, it's who we are. Friends, we are indeed God's church, God's gathering, God's assembly, God's congregation. I mean, you know the old saying, right? We don't go to church, we are the church. Have you ever heard that? It's true, in part. There is a sense in which we are the church, but we are not merely the church. The church is not merely a people. There are other elements that need to be considered. I mean, we get this idea from like Matthew 16, 18, where, where Jesus said to the properly professing Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that he's not just talking about Faith Bible Church in 2020. He's talking about something bigger. When, when God's people are included into his family, they become a part of his church. So indeed, we are the church. But as trendy and as accurate as that is, it is not entirely true. The church is not just fundamentally a people, but it also involves a purpose and a place. A purpose and a place. See, here's what we need to do. We need to understand what the word church actually means. And I hate to sound like so um, pedantic, but I really think that we have a tendency to define words the way that we want to define them. And the reason I know that people read their Bible in such a ridiculous fashion is because I have a tendency to do the same thing. Sometimes I just automatically, naturally import my own understanding of something upon a text, right? Do you ever do that? One of the biggest ways that we have done that, especially in the last 100 years as a church, using the broader, larger term here, is with the word church itself. What does the word church mean? Now, here's the deal. We believe, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, that every word of God is inspired. Even the words matter. And the fact that God used the word ecclesia, or church, to describe who we are is significant. He could have used other words, like crowd, aklos, or people, demos, but he uses the word ecclesia. He uses the word church to describe his people. And an ecclesia is different than a demos or an aklos. You know, the, the fact that these words are so important. I, have, how many of you have ever read uh, Alice in Wonderland? You've actually read it. 
a few of you. Maybe the rest of you saw the cartoon movie. <laughs> it's a crazy book. It has no point. It literally has no point. And it sold well. It went, it, it went so well that, in fact, there was a sequel entitled Through the Looking Glass. And it also has no point. But it's fun to read. There's this interesting interchange in Through the Looking Glass where Alice meets Humpty Dumpty. And they get in this uh, discussion, this fierce debate, as Alice tends to get in fierce debates with many. Over the word glory, glory, Humpty Dumpty basically says to Alice at one point in the conversation, there's glory for you. And then Alice said, I don't know what you mean by glory. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. Who is master over the words that we see in the biblical text? How do we know like, what is intended? Well, friends, we always want to ask ourselves, what was the original author writing? What was the person who was inspired of God actually writing? How would the original group of people understood it? That's the master. God preserved his word in time and space and history so that we can know what these words mean. They don't just change every few hundred years. They're locked in for us, if you will, so that we can have some understanding. God is the master of his words. He determines their meaning. And that means he has already defined for us what the word church actually means. So what does he mean? Well, anyone reading the term ecclesia in the original context of the pages of the New Testament in that day would have noted that it was a duly convened assembly of people. A duly convened assembly of people. Uh, meetings of people or a city or a population. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word ekklesia is frequently and most often used to describe the assembly of God. Now, I want you to understand this. Not the people of God, different word. The assembly of God, where people actually assembled. The gathering of God. That passage that we read in Hebrews chapter 12 talks about uh, the assembly of the firstborn, and it's likening it to that event on Sinai where the nation of Israel like, came together and they were his representative group. They weren't just kind of like scattered all about and they were his people. They came together and it was at that point that they were God's fully representative people. And then that would happen as God's law would unfold several other times a year. Three times a year, Israel would gather together and they would become the assembled people of God. Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles. What was happening? It was an assembly. They were fully, they were the fully constituted people of God. That is the, the Greek word ekklesia. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. The, the polis, the meeting of people, the, the official deliberative bodies of Greek city-states. They were called ecclesias. And they were not called that when they were spread out. 
The ecclesia was what happened when all the people gathered together. It was an actual gathering of people in an actual place for an actual purpose. Every once in a while, ecclesia would have a more broad connotation, but by and large, it was a purposeful assembly of people in a particular place. And what's so interesting, it's kind of like, to give it an analogy, our word team. Team. Not society or organization, but when you think of a team, what do you think of? Think of a baseball team. You think of an actual group, a purposeful group of people in a particular place. (laughs) So baseball teams are beginning to meet again, but guess what? Even though they've been scattered abroad, they've still been the team. But what makes them a team? The fact that they actually get together and do what? Play baseball. (laughs) They don't virtually play baseball. They actually come together and play baseball. You can break the team up. But what makes them a team? The fact that they regularly gather together to accomplish this particular event, playing or winning baseball games. In a similar way, that's how the Greek word ekklesia works. It is something that, it is an identity that is given to people on behalf of a regularly recurring activity. And what is the regularly recurring activity? Purposeful gatherings. And so when we say that we are the church, we're not saying that we're God's people We're saying that we are God's gathered people. We are saying that we are God's assembled people. We are saying that we are his congregation. If you want to give the better translation of the word church that you see in your Bibles, it is either congregation or assembly. Congregation or assembly. And in fact, translations in the 1500s that tried to translate it congregation were like exnade. Because there was a national and state church that didn't like the idea of congregation being so specific. But a congregation is an actually gathered group of people. And here's what I want you to grasp, friends. This is who we are. We are a gathered group of people that meet in real time and in real space. But this is where things get interesting. Because I know that every one of you in here, you're smart people. And you're thinking, all right, Justin, if I am the church, in what sense am I already gathered? (laughs) How is it that I am the church even when I'm not at a local building? Well, this is where we begin to understand that we are already, in a sense, gathered before God Almighty. The Matthew 16, 18 passage where Jesus says, I will build my church It's pointing to something heavenly and pointing to something that is fully expressed at the end of time. God will one day fully gather his people, and he goes ahead and tells them now, I'm going to characterize you by this ultimate end-time gathering. That's what the Hebrews 12 passage was about. It's ominous. It's different. It's weird. Most of you have probably never heard a passage from, I mean, a, a message on Hebrews 12, just like in the text that we looked at. But I want you to put your eyes on it again because I want you to see what the the argument here. Now, we understand, if we have any background understanding of the the particular passage at hand, that in the book of Hebrews, you had a, a group of Christians, whether they were genuinely saved or not, it's not the point of this discussion today, who were considering walking away from the faith. Persecution had entered. It was very inconvenient for them to continue gathering with people and therefore experience the physical pain that would be accompanied by being thrown into jail. And so some of them were saying, look, Judaism's safe. Let's just go back to Judaism. And so 
the, the, the writer here is actually trying to encourage them, no, stay with it. Stick with Christ. He's superior. He's better. Judaism is not just another safe alternative. You need to stick with Jesus and his people. And the fact that he's concerned not only with Jesus, but his people is seen in chapter 12, verse 12. But we're starting there. He says, therefore, Lift your drooping hands in light of the pain that you're experiencing and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint but rather be healed. And notice this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain to the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it may become defiled. Do you notice how he's concerned not only for their personal relationship with Christ, but he wants them to continue to care for the other people around them? So on what basis then are they to continue this painful process of pursuing Jesus individually and corporately? Here's the argument. Beginning at verse 18. Why should you do this for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness? and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Notice, he's comparing them to the Old Testament assembly. The Old Testament gathered people of God. When they gathered before Sinai, he's saying, you, you didn't come to just Sinai. The reason why you need to leave, I mean, the reason why you don't need to leave, the reason why you need to cling to Christ and his people is because this wasn't just Sinai. And you're thinking, how does it get any bigger than Sinai? I mean, a burning mountain, God thundering from on high? I mean, it, it doesn't get any more sensational and huge than what happened there. And yet he says to them, you actually belong to something bigger than that. Already, you better not leave this because you belong to something that is more significant, more weighty than that. You are already a part of a superior assembly. And what is that? Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see what he's saying? He says, you already belong to this group. And notice the word that is buried in the middle of that. It says, it is the assembly, the ecclesia, the church of the firstborn of God. You're already a part of that. We are, in Christ, think of this, already a gathered group of people. It is like fundamental to our DNA. We are not just individuals. We are in Christ, and therefore we belong to one another. We're the officially, rep, I mean, gathered group of God expressed in, or experienced in two ways. One, in heaven, now. Two, in heaven to come. Did you know that there is a sense in which there is a part of you, spiritually speaking, that is already enjoying access with God in heaven now? Most people will quickly read over that little phrase in Ephesians 2, verse 5, 
where it says that you have already been raised up together with Christ and you have been seated with him in the heavenly places. We're in such a hurry to get to verses 8, 9, and 10 that we neglect some of the bigger realities of what's happening. There is some piece of me, some piece of you that is currently represented in heaven. It is already gathered. That's one. But two, we are already the gathered people of God because the end destination. We already have an appointment for that gathering that is to come. Several men in our church uh, had signed up to attend uh, T4G. It was a preaching event, if you will. They, they had spent money, and they were anticipating this, this gathering. But that one got called off. <laughs> but they could already say that they were enrolled, that they were going to be a part of T4G. They were considered attendees. They even got a little wristband. They, they got promotional materials. Like, it was as if they already belonged. And guess what, friends? Uh, you belong to an event that will not get called off. It is an assembly. It is a gathering of the saints of God. It, it is described for us beautifully in 1 Thessalonians. And I would encourage you to flip over there. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where, where Paul describes that we who are alive and who are left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. <laughs> You see the language. Together there is an assembly that is coming. God will gather his people to himself. And thus, we can already say that we are, right now, the assembled people of God. Because of heaven now and heaven to come. And this should affect our identity. This has been embedded within our DNA. Here's the deal, friends. This may be who we are. But what we call so often the universal church or the invisible church is not merely a group. It is not merely a society. It is an actually gathered group. Heaven now and the new heavens and new earth to come. Let's ask the final question and we'll be done for today. This is where we'll stop. What about right now? What about physical time and space on this earth? Does God intend for his visible people to gather here and now? What about local church gatherings? What about the visible church assembly? Well, here's the deal. God made us a part of an actual gathering upon salvation. As the church, we are the purposeful assembly of people in a particular place. And in fact, this gathering has been manifest in a very specific way. Our union with Christ is expressed or evidenced in our physical gatherings with one another. Now, I'm just making a statement, and I'm not backing it up. So you should be like, huh? Or really? (laughs) We need to think about this scripturally. Why are we called a gathering, which implies time and space? It's because it is something that we actually do. It is not just who we are, but it is what we do. Which brings us to the second point. Gathering is not just who we are, but it is what we do. When the New Testament people of God were born, they were born with this instinct to gather. You remember in Acts chapter 2, after the the multitude was converted, what happened? It said, now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he preaches, and it says in verse 41, So those who received word 
were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now remember, I said this is in our DNA. This is part of who we are as a church. And what did that first group of the people of God immediately begin to do after their baptism? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. You know, notice that. They were together, they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread. You don't do that digitally. And, and all who believed were what? Together. And they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with his people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Guess what? The DNA worked itself out. These people began to gather and each of these gatherings authoritatively represented Jesus. See, the believers in the New Testament were enrolled in the regular and actual gatherings of the people of God. And here's the amazing thing. Local gatherings, whether in congregation or a house church, were manifestations of the risen Christ. Any of these group of people who would begin to regularly gather because it was already in their DNA. It was already who they were. Every one of those local assemblies was considered to be, hold on to this for a moment, the church. Not a part of the church, a piece of the church, a fraction of the church, but any time there was a local gathering of believers regularly assembled to represent Jesus, the New Testament calls them the church. That is significant. They, they bore the full weight of representing Jesus in a gathering. Not just as individuals, but when they came together. I mean, just look at 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1 and 2. I mean, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to the church of Corinth, the church of God, not the church is, it's the church is the church of God. This is true on, on two more levels. Think of what happens in Matthew 18, 17 to 20. It's a passage that's familiar to our church family. Jesus says about those who are actually trying to work with sin in, the, in their number, <laughs> in their group. And there's this idea that, you know, somebody has gotten into a disagreement with someone else and that person tried to make it right with that individual, but that doesn't work out. So then they take two or three more people with them, and then those people are supposed to try to like adjudicate the situation and make it right. And what's so fascinating is the way Jesus follows this up, because right now it just sounds like kind of small scale, like, hey, just me, you, a few. But in Matthew 18, specifically, sorry, I'm trying to turn there. Jesus will begin to confer his authority upon the gathered group. And if the two or three can't work it out, uh, this is exactly what he says. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, verse 17, tell it to the church, the ecclesia, the congregation, the gathered ones. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
It means remove him. Now notice how Jesus backs up the authority of this gathered group. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Two or th- that's all it takes? Two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus, like actually represent him? And there's something special about gathering. This is a particular group of people in a particular place accomplishing a particular purpose. It isn't just a people. It's a people, a place, and a purpose. It's not only seen in Matthew 18, but in 1 Corinthians 11. You remember what was going on there where uh, the Corinthians, the church at Corinth that we just talked about, that local church, that local assembly, they were getting together and they were doing the Lord's table in a much more extravagant way than we do it. They actually had an entire meal. They would incorporate uh, the supper, the Lord's Supper, into the meal. And Paul actually tells them there, and he warns them. And his advice is just stunning when you think about like the way that Paul treated that local assembly, that local congregation. He says to them, when they're like not getting this supper right, in the following instructions, verse 17, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, for the worse. Think about it. They're actually coming together. There are no virtual family dinners. This is a real dinner. They're actually with one another. He says, why is it for the worse? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, as an ecclesia, as a congregation, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, again, a real coming together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat in the way that you're doing it. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Did you pick up on that? I mean, to get this gathered thing wrong, to mistreat communion, to selfishly partake of this meal is to what? Despise a church of God? A part of the church of God? No, you are despising the church of God. The eschatologically, in time, assembled people of God express themselves in local, real gatherings and time and space. It's who we are. It's what we do. How can you be called a gathering if you don't gather? How can you be called a congregation if you don't congregate? How can you be called an assembly if you don't assemble? That's why I say God defines the word. If God wanted to call this thing a society, he could have. There were plenty of great Greek words for that. You know, one really cool one is the collegia. That's what most people treat the church like, like it's a college, like it's an educational institution. And people can enroll for classes, and hey, you know what? If I don't like the teaching that's going on right now, I'm just not going to come, and I'll enroll next semester. But guess what? God doesn't call us the collegia. He calls us the ecclesia. He calls us the assembly. And assemblies assemble. They eat meals together. Like, that requires physical presence and touch. 
It's what we do. God designed the church to gather regularly for the authoritative preaching of the word, the practice of the ordinances, and the protection of the ordinances. And while preaching could theoretically be done online, pastoral preaching must be done among the flock. And while ordinances, I guess, could be done at home, I guess you could break your own bread and you could drink your own wine, the only problem with that is that (laughs) this was supposed to express, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, only oneness with Jesus, but oneness with his people. And you don't do that dining alone. Friends, we need to be really clear especially as I'm so grateful for so much that's going on here and the way that um, so many in our church have enabled us to have a digital presence. As we now have more of an electronic presence, may we remember that this ministry, this church, is not merely an information distribution point. It is a church. It is a gathering. It is not informational only, it is interpersonal. And so we must view ourselves rightly because here's where I'll turn this practical. Your perception of the church, your perception of the church will affect your passion for the church, which will affect your practice for the church. Your perception of the church will affect your passion for the church, which will affect your practice as a church. Let me dispel three final myths. One is the church is a place only. Do you make this mistake like I do? The church is a place. Did you see the renovations they made at the church? You ever say that? Or how far do you live from the church? Or I left my Bible at the church. When we talk that way, what are we saying? I even said it yesterday to the kids. Oh, i got to go to the church. (laughs) But it was a Saturday, and there was only like eight of us here. I'm implying that the church is a place only. Uh, Sometimes we use the word church, we use the word church as an event. Not just a place, but an event, a performance. Someone is frustrated by how long church lasted. Or, did you enjoy church yesterday? Or, did you catch church online? What are we saying at that point? We're saying that church is merely an event. So church as a place only, church as an event only. And then another way we do it is church as its leaders only. You've got to be really careful of this. The pastors. Oh, I love the church's vision. By that they mean the vision statement crafted by the elders. Or the church excommunicated Stephanie. Like the elders were the ones who, that's like code word, the elders kicked somebody out of church. The functional understanding of church here is that it's this pastor's. Like, that's the pastor's job. And yet, here's the deal, friends. The Bible speaks of the church as a people. It is a people. Matthew 18, 17. Tell it to the church. I love this one in Matthew, I mean, Acts 18, 22. When Paul landed at Caesarea and went up and greeted the church, or at the end of Romans, he says, greet the church in Prisca and Aquila's house. Like, like that, that is people. It differentiated the church from the house. It's people. But not only does the Bible speak of the church as a people, but a people who gather together in a place. Acts 14, 27. And when they arrived 
and gathered the church together. Notice that. They gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them. Acts 14, 27. Next one is 1 Corinthians 11, 18. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So it is indeed a people. But it's also a people in a place. Catch this last one. It's a people in a place for a purpose. For a purpose. Matthew 18, 17. If they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. The church who bears my authority, purity, protection of this fellowship. That's one of the purposes that God has given it. Or Acts 15, 4 and verse 22. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, along with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them. Notice in this last one, by the way, the church is distinguished from its leaders. It's not just the leaders. The church decided who the leaders were. So why does this matter? Say, so Justin, this just sounds like really pedantic. I can't believe that you spent our first gathered Sunday back talking about this. Duh, church is in a symbol. I get it. Well, I think it's important, though, that we understand what we mean by church. Because if you say church is important and you think of it as a place, that's going to affect something. And if you all say that church is important and you think of it as merely a people, it's going to affect something. And if you say that it's just the pastors, it's going to affect something. We've got to get our terms right. So what are the outcomes of this then? Well, remember, your perception of the church will affect your passion for the church, which will affect your practice as a church. First of all, if you view the church merely as a place or as a building, what are you going to do? How would that impact you? How will it affect you? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to prioritize the building over the people in it. If you view the church primarily as a building and not people, you're going to prioritize the building over the people in it. I mean, indeed, a building is a, a wonderful tool for the sake of ministry, especially since churches must gather in a space. Friends, with the humidity and rain outside, I'm certainly glad we're not in that field over there. We want to also make sure that the space is conducive to the mission and vision of, of, of the church. It accommodates the needs of his people. Man, i got to say this, and I'm glad this is on camera. I am so grateful for the building committee at this church, for Mike Vitt and his team and the work that they've done on this church, for the other church members who have donated substantial time and energy and resources to make this a better place for us to meet. Aren't you? But at the end of the day, we all need to agree that the people and purpose are more important than the property. We need to be careful that our passion for the church aligns with Jesus' passion for it. I mean, how many times have churches been harmed because people cared more about the color of the paint or the style of the auditorium than the condition of the people or the status of the attendance? It's like a joke. It's laughable. It's like a common joke. Churches split over the lights or churches split over the carpet color. I mean, like, really? How does that happen? Because they think the church is a building. Again, remember, perception not only impacts passion but practice. If we view the church, by the way, as merely a place, we will not try to build up people, but we will try to build up buildings. It would be really easy to look at what's going on here and say, man, what a growing church. no. What we have is a pretty building. Do not view this as success. Or if we do anything over there as success. I know churches, though, say, man, look at this church growing. 
And I've seen some big, pretty buildings in Naples, by the way, filled with people who don't represent Jesus that well. If you view the church as a program, you've got a problem, too. As opposed to a purposefully gathered people, how, how will it affect you? If you say, well, the church is a program, that perception will affect your passion. See, here's the deal. You will start evaluating the effectiveness of a church on the basis of its programs. How good was the music? How organized was the kids' ministry? How funny and engaging was the preacher? Enjoyment of quality child care and entertaining performances are not an accurate measure of spiritual growth or health. I know many an unsafe person who loves a funny speaker and good babysitting. This is not being a part of the church. This is not what we're talking about. If, if we have this view, we think that we are doing our part if we just simply show up and not engage with others. Here's the classic symptom of somebody who views the church as a program. When the church can gather, they show up a few minutes late, they leave as soon as they can because they think, all right, I got my spiritual thing done today. I attended the event instead of I participated in the gathering. It irks me. And I've tried to be really careful with the elders and the pastors and the technology team that people don't think that because they watch this that they are going to church. Some people can't come right now. I understand that. My own wife is not here with my children. There are times when you are sick and you cannot come. There are times that you're at risk that you cannot come. There are times that there are hurricanes, friends. Remember a few years ago? And we cannot come. I get it. And some teaching better than no teaching, but don't let us ever make that mistake that because we watched a program, we did church. The church is not a program. And then, finally, if you instinctively think that the church is merely its pastors as opposed to its purposefully gathered people, how will this affect you? This one may be the most dangerous because I think that so many of you, I love this about you, you have such a high view of uh, eldership and the pastors. And I see that as a stewardship. But that has its own danger. If you think that me or me and the other elders or the church, man, we're going to have some huge problems. See, it's going to affect your passion because you will judge the success or failure of the church based on the perceived giftedness or personality of the pastor or pastors. And thereby you'll neglect your responsibility as one of the gathered saints of God. You'll be more worried about my performance than yours. You'll critique my participation more than you critique yours. But I'm not the church. We are the church. See, there's nothing wrong with appreciating pastoral leadership. I mean, it's important. But I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm careful with this. I, I wrote this down because I don't want to say it wrong. But think about it. I wrote it down. Pastors are not essential to the church. I'm going to say it one more time just in case you didn't hear. Pastors are not essential to the church. They're important. But they're not essential. You can have a church without a pastor. 
What do you think they're doing in China right now? Why do you think Jesus said we're two or three are gathered together in my name? Why do you think he said tell it to the church, not to the pastors? A church is irregular without pastors. Think of what was going on in the island of Crete. Paul goes and he plants churches all around the island of Crete, and then he goes and tells Titus, hey, raise up elders in every city. Guess what? They were already churches, but they still needed elders. So just, I don't get it. Okay, all right, semantics again. I, I get it. I'm not the church. The, the pastor's not the church. I'm the church. What does this have to do with anything? Because you need to view yourselves, friends, as essential personnel. The pastors aren't essential. Who is? You are. You are. The people are. You and I together have a responsibility to protect the name of Jesus, Matthew 18. You and I together have a responsibility to protect how the ordinances are conducted here at this church. Somebody put in um, one of the surveys that we was a, It was informing. I wasn't angry about it. It was informing. One person was like, you know, I don't know why y'all do these members' meetings. I just trust the elders. You know, I appreciate that sentiment. You're like, hey, the elders are going to do what needs to be done. And, man, I love that credit. But I thought, man, I've taught something wrong if I've given the impression in my preaching and teaching that this is just what the elders do and not what we do. We are the gathering. We have a role to play. It is your job to ensure that Christ is preached here. It is your job to ensure that the ordinances are practiced appropriately here. Whole gatherings matter. This weekly assembly, these occasional members' meetings, other opportunities to gather matter. Seminars, small groups, prayer times, hospitality with one another. Friends, we are not merely an organization or a society, but we are a team. We may belong to the big leagues, the eschatological assembly, if you will, but we still play baseball here. Thus, when we gather, we represent that assembly, the church of the living God. (laughs) And thus we gather. It's who we are. It's what we do. Let's pray. Father, we have a huge responsibility to represent you not only as individuals, but as the church, as the gathering. And I realize that some of us can't do that right now. And some of us won't be able to gather for some time to come. But I pray that you would reinforce within this congregation the need, the importance, the significance, the essential nature of us getting together in time and space to hear the preaching, to practice the ordinances. Or make this even more clear for us in the days ahead. I pray that our perception will affect our passion, which will affect our practice. In Jesus' name, amen.